Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretch out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistine. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Who is like you, O God, among gods of which we have many, who compares to you? Your majesty defies comprehension. Your holiness exceeds our reach. And Yet in your love you redeemed us and you lead us to your holy places. And so we thank you, Lord, because that is the reason we are here in your presence this morning. We worship you. We confess we have sinned against you and that by our actions and even by our inactions we have withdrawn from you. Forgive us, Lord, and have mercy on us. We pray for Tommy as he preaches the word this morning. We ask that the Holy Spirit make his task easy. That our hearts may be open to receive and that our mind be devoid of the distractions which will steal this word away from us. We pray that what we hear, we will practice. But at this time, I want also to pray for Afghanistan. The past week has been a sad and tumultuous week. And so I would like to pray that the God of peace will not depart Afghanistan even when the last boots of soldiers live there. I'd also like to pray that God will encourage the Christians that are there who are suffering persecutions that they might have strength to undergo through the trial of this crucible. I pray that they will be protected and they will be strengthened and that whatever weapons the enemy has, the gates of hell will not prevail against your church. Finally, I'd like to pray for the members of the Taliban. We might look at them as evil. We might look at them as having done things that 
are so far removed that they could not repent. But there's no one who is outside the scope of forgiveness. And so, Lord God, we pray, no matter how minute the probability, no matter how improbable it might be, that even those who might unleash terror on others, that they have an opportunity to hear your word, repent, and come to you. And I also pray that even as we are here in the United States, we are here in Amherst, in Massachusetts, that we pray for those who are lost, that they might find their way to you, O Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you because we know our prayers are answered. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Brecca. Have a seat. Well, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. My name is Tommy. I am very glad that you are here. You are willing to weather the storm. We may be stuck here for a long time together, so settle in. Uh, in all honesty, I think our basement is a fallout shelter, so there's that. Uh, I'm glad that you're here with us this morning. I'm going to be bringing the word for us. Uh, for, for those of you who have not been around, you might be hearing that Mercy House is going through a bit of a transition right now. Uh, we've been so incredibly blessed by Melanie and Robert Crumry. They have really led the gospel charge, spearheaded it for the last 22 years. Over a thousand sermons preached here. And it was great last week to be able to celebrate them, uh, celebrate what God has done through them and their ministry, to love on them, and to just send them off to the next season of their lives. Um, but here we are, Mercy House. Robert and Melanie are not here with us right now. Uh, it's the first Sunday in the history of our church without a senior lead pastor, without a person in the room uh, whose calling and whose job it is to focus on the teaching and the shepherding of our flock. It's a precarious place to be. That much is true. I think the question that we can ask is, are we to be nervous about this mercy house? Are we to be anxious about how things are going to pan out? Should we be afraid of what possible outcomes there might be down the road? And the answer to that is absolutely not. I've been wrestling with what should be said specifically on this Sunday. See, what we could do right now is we can spend our time uh, listening to a sermon about how change is good. That it's, it can be good to stir the pot sometimes. We can be optimistic and say, you know what, the grass is only going to be greener from here on out. That this ministry is just going to take off from here. And we can all together try to ride this, this optimism and this positivity and just kind of like will ourselves to believe that it's all going to be great because of some feel-good, gird-ourselves-up sermon. Unfortunately, I'm not going to do that. Actually, fortunately for you, I'm not going to do that for you this morning. Uh, quite frankly, I don't want disqualify, to disqualify myself from leadership on this first Sunday where Robert is gone. Mercy House, we have one true hope, and it's never been more important to make sure that we are looking in the right place. Because it's not in finding a new seasoned pastor. Our hope is not in building some sort of stacked elder room. It's not found in even church harmony between one another. It's not found in having fruitful ministries of discipleship or gathering together people to serve really well our community and one, each, uh, one another. Our hope is in Jesus 
Christ, the all-powerful God of the universe. And today, next Sunday, what we'll be doing is a two-sermon short series looking at the power and the provision of God as he rescues and shepherds his people in the book of Exodus. And so if you have your Bibles, if you're open, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 15. And so as an overview, in the next two weeks, we're walking through these two chapters in the book of Exodus, which is the second book in the Bible, following the story of how God powerfully rescues his people, the Israelites. How he develops trust with them by providing for their needs as they spend 40 years in the desert. And ultimately what he does is he gives them an incredible hope, a hope that is so powerful that never fades throughout all of eternity. Now, there is some setup that's important for us and and that I'm going to do, and uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to assume that you know nothing about the story from Exodus. And when I first came to Mercy House as a student, I I could tell you where Exodus was in the Bible, but I couldn't tell you who the Israelites were and why they were so important. And so if you don't know these things, don't worry. We're going to walk through it together. But here's a crash course. As you read through the Bible, starting with Genesis, going into the second book uh, of the Bible, Exodus, what you see is God choosing a group of people called Israel. And he sets them aside as, as unique and special. And what's really important is that there's actually nothing particularly unique or special about them. So this is not like a schoolyard game where you're choosing the fastest and the strongest people for your team. Uh, because Israel is neither of those. Israel is unique and special specifically because God chooses them. Later on, as you're reading in Exodus, you see God talking about why he chose Israel out of all the other groups of people in the world he could have chosen. You see this in chapter 7, starting in verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. See, Israel becomes God's special chosen people, not because they're a powerful nation, not because they're, they're the top dog or that they're extra creative or extra cool or we're like the influencers of the ancient world. He actually chose them because they're a bit of a runt of the litter. They, they were insignificant as a people group. They were puny. They, they were the fewest of all the peoples. But nevertheless, Israel becomes God's chosen, his cherished, his beloved people. I personally had a really awesome experience of this myself. When I was six years old, I was adopted. And my birth mother didn't want me. She actually was supposed to abort me in the womb, but by God's grace, I was kept alive. And when I was six years old, I got to meet Shirley Ann Moore, a very special woman to me. And what she did was that she chose me to be her son. She adopted me into her family, and I became to her a special and unique little boy. Not because I had a PhD at six years old, not because I had tons of money in my bank account, not because I was particularly strong or unique or smart. It was, it was actually, I, I was a runt. <laughs> I was an asthmatic, wheezy little six-year-old with eczema. I was allergic to strawberries, and I was terrified of the dark. Like, that's what was on my playing card as my mom was looking looking for kids to adopt, okay? But my mother chose me to be her own. She brought me home to be her special boy. God does the same thing with Israel. 
the runt of all the nations. He chose them to be his special treasured people. And so things go really well for a period of time with Israel. They, they actually prosper alongside the most powerful nation in the world at that time, Egypt. But what happens over time is that Egypt starts getting a little nervous. They, they feel threatened by Israel, and under the cruel and vicious leadership of an evil pharaoh, Israel becomes enslaved and forced into harsh labor, even at one point having their children murdered by Pharaoh. And so the first 14 chapters of Exodus tell the story of how God sees and he hears the cries of his special people, of how he raises a leader named Moses and takes on the most powerful nation in the world. And God remembers his people, and through a series of incredibly miraculous supernatural events, God rescues Israel from Egypt, and he frees them from their slavery. And I highly encourage you to read this in the book of Exodus. And as you read it, what you're seeing is that it isn't a small feat. We're talking about God taking on the most powerful nation in the world through a dude named Moses. If you know nothing about Moses, he's a shy guy with a really bad speech impediment. He's not the guy that you would necessarily choose as the fastest, the strongest to lead a revolt against the most powerful nation in the world. But they're doing things like having hail and fire fall from the sky, turning all the water in Egypt into blood. The very last thing that they experience right before we pick up in the story here is, is they have the sea split into two so that Israel could pass through the middle, only to have it come crashing back together, destroying the pursuing Egyptians. And so this is where we're jumping into the story this morning. Israel just escaped Israel, the waters have crashed back together behind them just as they get across the Red Sea. And then what do God's people do? Look at verse 1 of chapter 15. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. What you're seeing here is the first recorded song in the Bible. It's really the first worship track that has ever been written. And that's what's happening here. And this is why I love it so much is that it's so relatable. Like we as humans love to sing. We love to make music uh, and specifically to help us celebrate things. Think about some of life's uh, most important events and how weird they'd be if there wasn't music. So like think of a, a graduation. Imagine a graduation that is in complete silence with no music, right? You don't even have to imagine it. You can watch. Ready? So this is what it would look like. Hey, Mom. Like, that would be awful. Like, all the, the, all the hype into that moment, getting across the finish line, and, like, we need music to fulfill that experience. If you've ever been to a wedding before, when, when the man and the woman are officially pronounced, uh, there's always an exit song, right? Like, it would almost be weird if there was no exit song. Singing songs is just the way the humans celebrate things. I mean, if you think about it, even, like, happy birthday, we've made it into a song. Like, it should be sufficient, to, sell, to, to talk to somebody and say, hey, Brendan, happy birthday, man. I'm really glad that you're alive today. Like, that should be sufficient, but it's not. So what we do is we bake a cake, we put fire on top of it, and then we all gather and sing to this person and watch them blow out candles. Like, that's a whole experience that we have to celebrate somebody. Like, we sing, all of us. It doesn't matter. When you're singing happy birthday, it doesn't matter if you have a good voice or a bad voice. Everyone's singing, right? We sing to celebrate things. It's a way that we're built. Singing is just a natural way that we express ourselves, especially when we're celebrating something. 
And Israel, after having been rescued from harsh slavery, after having their lives saved in miraculous fashion, they have something to celebrate about. I'm going to read the lyrics of Moses' song, and I just, I just want you to listen. Listen to what Moses is celebrating. Listen to what is so important to him that he actually had to write a song about it. Starting in verse 2, the Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The flood stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. And you blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead into the mighty waters. The first thing that should jump out to you that Moses and all of Israel is doing is they are celebrating what God has done, and they are not considering their current situation. Uh, Practically speaking, it might be wise to sit down and form a committee and figure out what to do next. The reality of it is that they're homeless. They have no source of income. Their resources are literally whatever they have on their backs at this point. It is reasonable that some of them might be worried, some of them might be anxious, and maybe a little bit afraid of what's about to happen to them. That it might be a good idea to come up with a plan. But that's not what Israel immediately does. They're not focused on themselves or what they need to do or to figure out, but in this moment, they are wholly focused on God and what He has just done. And this is one thing I want to encourage us to do this morning and in these coming weeks, Mercy House. I think that we are so prone to let our worries, our anxieties, the uncertainty of the future occupy really the fullness of our hearts and our minds. And I'm not saying that we should forget about the things that we need to do or to figure out or just dismiss our responsibilities. But Mercy House, if you find yourself constantly running, constantly planning, constantly worried, constantly anxious or fearful, it's likely because we have not stopped to behold and worship God. Not just to stop and to veg out on Netflix or go play a round of golf or to go to the spa and really treat ourselves. No, what I mean is to stop and worship God for who He is and what He has done. Even now, you might be listening this morning, but your brain and your heart might be so wrapped up in whatever else is going on in your life right now. And I get it. I have been there and I have wrestled through that. I know what it's like to be sitting here physically, but to have my heart and my mind just not present at all. So I I want us all to do ourselves a favor this morning and to focus our attention for these 30 minutes or so, not on me, but on God, as I spend these next few minutes talking all about Him. What I'm not saying is, is, is that what you're going through or the challenges that you're facing are not important, nor is this an incredibly critical crossroad 
for the history of our church that we're navigating through together. But just like Israel is realizing there's something so much more valuable, so much more important, so much more fruitful to be focusing on, something that they naturally respond in doing, something practically, spiritually, and emotionally productive for them. And, and, and when they do it, and, and when we get it, it's going to enable us, just like Israel, to be able to see ourselves and our problems with the correct perspective. We'll realize that the world does not revolve around us, that, or, or, or even the church, that the Bible doesn't revolve around us and our church, but really both revolve around the glory and the awesomeness of God. When we can get that, that is the sobering, freeing place that allows us to healthily engage with the world around us, with the challenges that we face, with the trials and the hardships of life under the sun. As we read this passage, we're not only looking at just what God has done, but also how that relates to who He is. Even more specifically, the primary focus of this passage and this song is the power of God, and that that power is not a puny power. But for many of us, when we hear about God, I think we might be tempted to think that he's an old, distant grandpa up in the clouds somewhere, not really interacting with us. He kind of set the clock, and it's ticking, and he's just watching it all happen. That's not the God that Moses and Israel encountered. Look at verse 3. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In ancient warfare, horses and chariots were like modern-day tanks. They were incredibly power. They were also really expensive, and they gave you a significant military advantage on the battlefield. I don't know if you've ever stood next to a horse, uh, but you should be terrified when you're next to a horse. It is an incredibly massive creature that can kill you in an instant. Like, it's not like a little puppy dog that you can, like, punt if it tries to, like, attack you. Like, a horse, if it wants its day, like, it'll have it. So this is for us, making sense why it is an image, a representation of, of power in the ancient world. So you take these horses with riders on top, and, and they're both armored to the teeth, and they have swords, and they're trying to pursue you, and that is the image of power in the ancient world. But as powerful as they might be, there is nothing that compares to the power of God. They sank, those huge tanks that are so powerful, so terrifying, they sank into the ocean like stones. What we read here is that God's power is legitimate. It's not distant. It's not vague. It's very real. Look at how a man named Job describes God's power. Job chapter 26, starting in verse 7. He stretches out the north over the void and hangs the earth on nothing. He binds up the waters in his thick clouds, and the cloud is not split open under them. He covers the face of the full moon and spreads over it his cloud. He has inscribed a circle on the face of the waters at the boundary between light and darkness. The pillars of heaven tremble and are astounded at his rebuke. By his power, he stilled the sea. By his understanding, he shattered Rahab. By his wind, the heavens were made fair. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways. And how small a whisper do we hear of him. But the thunder of his power, who can understand? The first point this morning, Mercy asks, is that God is powerful. 
God is powerful in ways that we can't imagine or even fathom. He's so powerful that you literally can't quantify his power. Like, you don't measure how powerful God is by measuring how much he can, like, bench press or squat, like how we conventionally measure the strength of a person. We don't, like, record his 40 time and figure out, like, how fast is God. We're, we love this as humans, though. Like, we want to try to quantify power. We love benchmarking things. We, we like knowing what, what is the top speed of a car. What, what is, like, the processing speed of a CPU? Or really, like, how fast can, like, a fo- like, the newest phone boot up as soon as you hit the power button? Those are really nerdy and geeky, but, like, that's how I quantify power and speed. You may not be like this, but we did just have the Olympics recently where we measured everything. How far you can throw a small stone ball, how high you can jump, how fast you can swim, how much weight you can actually deadlift as a human being. Do you really think that we can quantify God's power? The answer is no. Isaiah 40 verse 12 says, He measures out all the water in the world in the palm of his hand. In his hand. Hebrews 1.3 says he upholds the universe by the word of his power. God doesn't deadlift weight as if he needs to get into like the strongest physical position and coordinate his hamstrings and, and his quads and like engage his core, right? Like he upholds the entire universe together by his words. Mercy House, that is power. That's how we need to view God when we see him. Not distant, not vague, but powerful. That is our God. He's an all-powerful creator, God of the universe, who honestly, as we're reflecting on these things, we really don't want to be an enemy of. And that's a huge part of why Israel is singing here. Not only did God just flex his power for the whole world to see, he did so to rescue his people. Israel is singing because God's power is on their side. And this is the second point this morning, that God uses his power to protect what is his. He uses his power to protect what is his. Um, When Chloe was about two, my daughter Chloe, we were at the park near our house, and and Chloe was climbing on this little step, little play structure thing, and there was this other kid, probably seven or eight, and he was just like bombing around the playground. He was running super fast, like not looking where he's going, and he's just shooting around, and I can see him kind of like tracking around, and I'm like, like his warpath includes Chloe, like on this little thing. And Chloe's this little two-year-old, and she's like, you know, trying to climb this little thing, and this kid's just like running. And I remember at that, at that moment having this thought like, all right, I'm like gonna gird myself up. Like, I'm gonna get ready to like stiff arm this kid in the face if I have to. Like, maybe put a boot in his chest. Like, whatever I need to do to not let this boy destroy my two-year-old daughter. And thankfully, at the last second, the kid like veered off and it wasn't a big deal at all. But I do remember that visceral place that I had in my heart. And maybe it's just me when I'm with my girls, but, but when they're around and they're around other kids, like I get into like this ultra defensive mode. Like I have two little girls, so you know, like I, I feel extra manly when I'm around my two daughters. Like I'm not gonna go beat up little children. I don't want you to take that away from this point right now. But if you are around my daughters and you like come into their bubble and are a threat to them, like I will happily put the fear of God into you, right? So like, that's my duty as a dad. I know I'm broken, being saved by grace and being sanctified, but this is what I feel, this intense jealousy for my children, this desire to protect them at all costs, to use my power, whatever power I have, to protect what is mine. 
And that's how God relates to Israel, his special people. He uses his power to protect what's his. So this begs the question, Mercy House, what are we afraid of? Like when we have this understanding of God's power that's used to protect us, what in the world are we afraid of? The reality is that we all have an Egypt in our lives, that oppressive power that produces anxiety, fear, panic, and when that's left unchecked, it can dominate our lives, it can make our decisions for us. And that's why beholding and worshiping God is so critical because it puts our fears into perspective. I, I joke about my protectiveness of my daughter, but that's honestly a joke compared to the protective power of God over his people. There is nothing under the sun or in heaven that can penetrate the protective power of the Almighty God. Know that, Mercy House. Sit in that. Meditate on that. So it's one thing to be protected and shielded by God. But what about what opposes God? Are we just to endure a barrage forever? Is there any justice to what we experience? And this is the final point of the sermon, which is that God, God's power destroys his enemies. God's power destroys his enemies. Look at verse 6. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead into the mighty waters. God not only uses his power as a protective shield to guard what is his, but he goes on the offensive and he attacks what is against him. And as Moses and Israel see the awesome power of God, uh, Moses is singing this truth. If, if you are an enemy of God, you are like stubble. Do you know what stubble is? Stubble is the tiny little stalks of grain that stick up in the ground after a harvest. It, it's like the tiny little baby hairs that grow uh, on your face to make up a five o'clock shadow. Like, can you see my stubble right now? No, that's the point, right? It's like, if you are an enemy of God, you are like stubble. You are like tiny little hairs that are barely even visible to Brennan, who's sitting in the front row right now. It is nothing compared to the power of God. If you want to stand up against God, you're about as powerful as the tiny little whiskers on my chin. And for Israel, this is great news. It's worth singing about. As God's chosen people, Israel is realizing that their God is powerful, that their God uses their power to protect him, and that God uses his power to destroy their enemies. See, this is the powerful reality which sprouts the first worship song and allows them to sit in this moment of realization. It allows them to stand there and be homeless on the bank of the river. No income, no food, no shelter, no game plan whatsoever and be just fine, and more than just fine, because they are joyfully singing about their God. What a moment, Mercy House. This is what worship is. It's finding ourselves in a place of seeing God who He is, and worshiping, extolling, enjoying Him for who He is. Well, what does this all mean for us? 
We're not an enslaved people group being hunted or pursued by chariots. What's really uh, important, though, for us is as you read the book of Exodus, what you're seeing is that God uses the story of Israel and his relationship with Israel to help us understand our relationship with him. In other words, Israel's relationship with God helps us understand our relationship with God. And so as we read this passage, there are three things I think that we can take away from it. One is that God is very personal. God is very personal, meaning that even though he's infinitely powerful, even though he's absurdly glorious and great, he still relates to us personally. He's not distant. He's not vague, an ultra-spiritual, inaccessible entity. He's a personal and relatable God. Look at verse 2. This is Moses saying, The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. Mercy House, that's incredible news. Even for some of us who are veteran followers of Jesus, and something we need to remember over and over and over again. God is not something to be put on the back burner. He's not only to be consulted in moments of great need or great anxiety, or great panic. God is not the bumper sticker you put on your car. He's not the poster that you put on your wall. He is a powerful God that desires a personal relationship with each and every one of us here this morning. He wants each of us He longs that each of us would be able to say, this is my God, and I will praise him. While we are not enslaved to Egypt like Israel was, we are enslaved nonetheless. And you might be wondering, I don't feel enslaved like I would know if I was a slave. But you see, Israel's slavery was one of physical chains and physical oppression, but it is symbolic of the spiritual slavery we experience because of sin. This slavery really is revealed through uh, having a deep sense of conviction over our own sin. When we realize that our thoughts and our actions are in opposition to God, and like Paul says in Romans 7 verse 15, we can't seem to change the way that we think or act even when we try with every ounce of power and energy we have to do so. Not being able to do the very thing that you want to do, that's slavery. And that's what it looks like to be enslaved to sin. Sin is also discernible by some of its effects when we feel guilty or ashamed, when we experience deep anxiety or depression, when we're hopeless, when we're self-destructive, when we're self-sabotaging, when, when we look at ourselves and at our relationships with others and at the world around us, and we just see brokenness, a sense that things are just not the way that they're so, supposed to be. That's the result of sin in us and sin in the world, and it's how we know that we live in a world that is enslaved by sin. This year or so of COVID and even this church transition, the anxieties and the stressors that come with it, among other things, it's been a great revealer of sin. A great revealer of sin. It's revealed sin in each of us, I'm sure. It's revealed sin in our families. It's revealed sin and brokenness in our friends, even right here in our church. On this side of eternity, in our broken world, sin is pervasive and ever-present. In his autobiography, Charles Spurgeon said, There was not a day in which I did not commit such gross, such outrageous sins against God that often and often have I wished I had never been born. 
That is the spiritual slavery that we, like Israel, experience. But thank God there's a second takeaway from this passage, which is that God rescues. Specifically, God rescues us from our sin. Mercy House, I don't know what your sin is, but I know that you have it. Because I have it. And every person I've ever talked to has experienced sin. Whether that's a furious or a murderous anger toward family and friends that we just can't get a hold of. Maybe a constant feeling of just bitterness and jealousy toward others. Or maybe not being able to, to stop lying or stealing or cheating. Or maybe it's there's just the constant scheming and, and the gossiping or the prideful judgment of anyone and everyone around you. Maybe like others, it's addiction to drugs, to alcohol, to pornography, to sex, or any other thing that we can latch onto in an addictive way. Maybe it's perpetuating unhealthy relationships, knowing that they're sinful, but we just can't care enough to get out of them. Whatever those areas are, that place for you of of disrespect, disobedience, and rebellion toward God that you may struggle with, there is good news. Whatever your slavery looks like, whatever your Egypt is, the oppressive sin that fills you with shame and with guilt, what we're reading here in the Bible is that God's incredible power and his desire for a personal relationship with you combine together to rescue you from your slavery to sin and to protect you for all of eternity. God uses his power through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross to rescue us from our sin. That's the good news of the gospel. That's what it means to be a Christian mercy house. For Israel, their journey with God began with this miraculous rescue. And that's how it has to begin with each and every one of us as well. You can't begin your journey with God without first letting him rescue you from your slavery to sin. And just like Moses was sent to deliver Israel uh, from the slavery of Egypt, this would foreshadow Jesus being sent to deliver all of humanity from the slavery of sin through his perfect life and death on the cross. If you're you're not a Christian, um, I'm super glad that you're here. That's awesome. I see a lot of new faces. I don't know where you're at spiritually, but I do want to give you this opportunity this morning. And look, you may just be coming here, exploring the church, exploring your faith, maybe appeasing a friend or a parent. But this much is true. If you have an awareness of your slavery and you want to be rescued and experience freedom, the invitation is on the table. You don't have to do anything to earn it. You don't have to pay for it. It's a free gift from God to you. If that's a decision you want to make this morning, come find me in the back. I'd love to talk with you. There's going to be other people with little lanyards uh, that signify that they're on Mercy House staff or volunteers. They'd love to pray with you, talk with you. If you want to just continue exploring this and kind of read up some resources on your own, we have a page on our website, mercyhouse365.org slash respond. And that lays out what it means to be a Christian. And so you can do that in your own time. And on that page, there's a way for you to connect with somebody when you're ready to talk to somebody about it. So I encourage you, to do that. But come talk to us. We're here. We'd love to hear about where you're at. For those of us who have put our hope in God, who have experienced the great rescue of God made possible by Jesus' death on the cross, the way that we respond is exactly how Israel responded on the shores of the Red Sea. After they experienced the miraculous rescue of God, defeating all odds, 
showing the glory of his incredible power to break them free, they sang. They worshiped. And some of us might say, I don't really, I'm not, I'm not really a singer. Well, I, I know, like, if you imagine yourself, like, at a football game or at a, at a concert, like, you are capable of being excited from, like, inside and out and jumping. And, like, you are capable of worship. You are made to worship. And so that's the way I want to challenge you this morning. I'm not a good singer. Trust me. Just stand near me when I sing. My experience in church has been when I worship God, I get a lot of this from the people in front of me. Right? Like people just turn around like who's making that sound out of their mouth? But you know, I'm not singing for the person in front of me. I'm singing to Jesus. And so I want to encourage you to do that. Just like Israel did. They, they commuted, communicated through song and music the worship of God. How worthy God is. How, how amazing, how powerful he is. This is something that we Christians will always do. In this life and into eternity, we will sing praises to God and we will worship Him and His power. I'm not going to lie, Mercy House, this season that we're in as a church family will be among the most challenging we've ever been through in the history of our church. Between COVID, challenges to our mental health, long-standing personal wounds, anxieties over our current situation, fears about the future, we are an incredibly vulnerable community right now, susceptible to sinful responses and schemes of Satan. That's why, Mercy House, it is so critical right now to look to Jesus, to make worship of him a regular discipline in our lives, to fix our gaze and to set our hearts on the only one true hope that we have and to behold the power of God and to delight in him. Like, it's good for us to do. You want to know how we're going to make it through COVID season two? Because I think it's coming by worshiping Jesus. You want to know how we're going to get through our sin issues, our depression, our deep hurts, and our rampant anxiety? By worshiping Jesus. Do you want to know how we're going to navigate through this difficult season in our church's history? The same way, by God's grace, we've survived and have been fruitful for 22 years by worshiping Jesus Christ. Now, there's other things that we need to do. Sure, I'm not trying to oversimplify this, nor am I naive. But in all that we do, if we do not start and end in beholding, adoring, and delighting in Jesus Christ, it's all for naught. Mercy House will be just another lifeless and vacant church building in New England, one with the sweet, rich history of faithful, fiery worship of Jesus Christ that over time slowly simmered out, became lifeless and cold. If we lose sight of the reason for our existence, which is to glorify and to worship God, we will lose our way as a church, period. But we pray and we plead that this will not happen to our church. Let's read this last portion of the passage and finish for the day. And as I read, I want to challenge you to ponder these words. Sing them out in your hearts and worship our God. Verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. 
the peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. Each week, we take communion here at Mercy House, and we're reminded of how God has chosen us as his people, um, how he has paid a tremendous cost to rescue us and to protect us, and not just for this moment, not for this season, but for all of eternity. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body, which has been broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. If you're a Christian, I invite you to take communion with us. You'll see below your chairs, the way that we do it right now is there's a little cup with two sides, and I think you can figure it out. We do this in your own time as the worship band comes back up and plays uh, a couple more songs. And take this time as you're doing communion to fix your eyes upon Jesus. Behold his power. Consider his great rescue of you. Find peace in his absolute protection of you. And then for our last song, sing Mercy House. Worship him celebrate our king who rescued us from our sin and who will be with us ruling and reigning forever and ever let's pray father we thank you for your great rescue of us we thank you for the miraculous work of salvation that is free that is to be received by faith and faith alone we thank you for 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 the freedom that we have in you We thank you that you continue to be our strength and our refuge, our hiding place. I pray, Lord, that you would grow us as a church community in worship of you, that that would be the signifier of this church community to the nations around us, God. Not that we have a cool building or fancy LCD screens or nice worship music style or we have a cool kids program, God, but that at the heart of everything we do, Lord, we are vibrant, loud, at times maybe even obnoxious in our worship of how awesome and powerful you are. Lord, we can only do that when you reveal your power to us. So we pray that you would do that. To those in this room who have never experienced your powerful rescue, we pray that that they would see it. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for rescuing us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.